Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another episode of Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. I am your host, Lindsay Pritchard Fox. Today, I have Kelly Cohn, who is the Vice President of Project Management for ClearEdge 3D. Um, welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, my pleasure to be here. It's just a shame I don't drink coffee. <sighs> well, yeah, I don't even have my cup of coffee right now. Um, but... So to give our audience a little backstory, uh, Kelly and I have worked together on, you're looking at us on YouTube, Scan to BIM, uh, Scan to BIM University, wearable diploma. So I think one of the one of the pain points Kelly and I share is we love the technology that's pushing into the construction industry. Um, and we're frustrated because there's a lack of um, accessibility so good information, good know-how, good workflow. And I would say that's kind of ClearEdge's uh, niche in the market is really integrating the technology and the workflows. Uh, so your background is really interesting. Can you just give us a quick run through of where you are, how you got there? Yeah, sure. So um, currently at ClearEdge 3D, we make uh, technology solutions for the construction industry and we're really we, we really are focused on a very narrow niche. Uh, we, we basically do computer vision uh, to automate uh, processes you know, when applying reality capture technologies to the construction industry. So really focused niche. Um, but, uh, but yeah, how I got here, uh, it's kind of a you know, long and winding story, I guess. But um, started out and the architecture side of things, uh, got a degree in architecture, I guess got two degrees in architecture from University of Texas at Austin, come on. Uh, and um, uh, went straight to work for a design build company because um, I had a really interesting experience in college. We did uh, the solar decathlon uh, and I just loved, 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 you know, that direct connection with, you know, designing it all the way through building it. And so, um, yeah, when, when it came time to pick a firm, I actually uh, took the lower paying offer <laughs> so I could go. What drove you to that? Firm. What drove you to that firm as a student? I, they did design build. So the other firms that I had offers from uh, uh, were great firms. Uh, they did great work, but they were design firms. And, uh, you know, Beck was a design build firm. And so um, just really, really love that experience so much on the Soul Decathlon that I, I, want, I knew I wanted to work at a design build firm. So uh, packed my bags, moved to Dallas uh, and uh, worked at Beck for about 10 years. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a great experience. Uh, went from the architecture side to the technology side to the construction side, back to the technology side. I uh, ended up running the virtual design and construction effort for that company for about five years. Well, I feel like you, I, I mean, I did read your bio, which is quite um, robust on LinkedIn. And I love that because it gives you, it gives, when I'm reading through that, I mean, I've known you for a few years now and everything that you're, you know, pushing out into the universe is, you know, you wear it. 
And when I'm literally, <laughs> and so I'm like reading, I'm reading through the way, the way that you presented your timeline and I'm like, this makes perfect sense. So when you're at a student of architecture, um, in the years that was, that was in the early two thousands and you're getting what type of technology existed when you were a student. Oh man, I mean, were you using? I mean, because we know that Revit existed in 2000. This is 2003. Yeah, I mean, I, I started in 2000 and graduated by my 2006 with the second one uh, with the master's. But yeah, it, they weren't. I mean, universities are notoriously behind in teaching technology to students. It's actually. Um, a big frustration that I had while I was in university because I wanted to be using some of these new applications, but we basically like nobody would let us use them. Um, it was even a stretch to use CAD in a lot of studios. Uh, and I was using uh, FormZ <clears throat> because there was a professor at the university that knew FormZ and would help us with it. And so I would, you know, oftentimes use FormZ in direct opposition to the professor. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, do some hand drawing at the end, just to say I did some hand drawing. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I was doing form Z trying to do rendering. And this is back when rendering, you know, took six days on a computer and, you know, and you'd get the rendering and you go like, Oh, that looks like crap. I put <laughs> no, the wrong thing there. Now I have to do all this stuff and do it again and wait another six days. And now it's like, you know, there's flipping Inscape and you click a button and it's real time and you're like, oh, this is amazing. I mean, uh, it really, really unlocks the design I have for sure. Oh gosh. I like the, this, you know, I wish the technology tools were there when I was a design student because it's like just Oh, the, the, the ability to be in VR designing and making adjustments and have that, have that feedback, you know, in perspective. Yeah. Is just, oh my gosh. There's a limit to how much anyone's imagination, even if you're a professional, even if it's like your field of study can, can, you know, imagine what that 3D space is going to feel like as you're sketching it in like in line yeah. form. And that's kind of crazy because, um, we do like when I get guests on, that's kind of the, one of the things I like to cover is there's a bunch of students that are right now going through a decision-making process of where they're going, what they want to study. Um, they're curious about, uh, they might be curious about design, it's very compelling. And then they'll get into um, institutions and it may or may not be relevant to what's actually happening, ha happening in the industry. Um, so, talking to your younger self, talking to the, the students that are now deciding what are some key things that they can differentiate the, the programs that they are looking for to get into? I mean, the good news is I think that technology doesn't really matter that much um, when you're in school. I mean, I think it's, it's really important that you learn to use the technology, use a technology as a tool um, because at the end of the day, it's just like, it's just like hand sketching, right? If, if you don't practice, if you aren't using it regularly, you won't be facile with it. And so, you know, while it's really easy to blame, you know, the old fogies uh, that we, you know, that I, I went to work with, uh, you know, old fogies, I mean, gosh, they were the same age I am now, uh, but they felt like old fogies when so I was just old when like, we were younger. <laughs> Right. I know. Right. But um, yeah, it, anyway, the, uh, the old fogies, you know, 
they weren't facile with those tools. And so asking them to pick up those tools in their, you know, 40s and start, you know, they could not design as effectively and as well in those tools as they could in AutoCAD or as they could with a pencil. Yeah, let's tell Picasso that he can only use uh, Procreate. Yeah, and he'll, he'll suck. <laughs> Right. And so it, out on for three years and then he'll make beautiful work. Right. But it's um, there's that learning curve with any technology. And so I, I think I think though there's not vast differences between Archicad versus Revit versus anything else. And so I think it's really important that you learn a BIM application in college now if you're a student, because that will, that will give you kind of the skill sets. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, well, I used a number two pencil and now I'm using a number, you know, I'm, I'm moved to 4H because I want these lines. And oh, I have to learn that I can't press as hard or, you know, there's little things you'll learn, but if you're good with a pencil, you're good with a pencil, you know, little right. changes aren't gonna, aren't gonna wreck your world. If you're good with a BIM tool, you'll be good with any BIM tool. You just need to learn the little nuances and proclivities of that particular tool. But got to learn something BIM. Uh, if you're going in design, got to learn real-time rendering, in my opinion. You just, need to, you just need to understand that feedback loop and how effective and efficient it is um, at making good designs. I mean, it's, it's just such an amazing tool. But um, I don't know. Maybe it's not necessarily about a software-specific application, but maybe the mindset of the institution and whether or not they're open because that was kind of our experience was that we were able to select the platform that we wanted to work in. There was very little support in learning that tool or learning best practices, which is why I love being part of scan to bim because we do talk about, there's a bunch of tools, but there's a specific way to efficiently use them versus this is the measure tool. This is, I'm like, no, no, I'm using that one. Stop it. Um, <laughs> but I love the measure tool. It's fantastic. Um, so, so you, I, I, I would say that like you experienced, like there was actually suppression of like the opportunity to use technology. Active. 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 And so that might be a cultural thing for a student to assess when they're looking into their programs is whether or not the program is open to that technology and whether they're giving you support or maybe even access to um, industry professionals, like current industry professionals that can, they can relate to or have a conversation with about like, what does it look like on the other side of this degree? Right, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing to ask and understand. I think, you know, fortunately most universities now have, have jumped on the BIM bandwagon. I think they're, you know, there's at least a couple professors there that will know some tool and help you with some tool, but it's, uh, Man, I tell you what, the universities will always be behind on the technology side, though. Uh, I, I think that's just uh, endemic to the, the institution because you end up with, you know, typically older licensed architects or unlicensed, you know, teaching. You have the couple of talent. It's hard to get yeah. talent. But it'll be that'll be especially if they. Yeah, it is. And it's unfortunate because they do feel like there's a lot of legacy knowledge that needs to get passed down. But how do you merge the two? And so I think it's really interesting that like on your way out of your program, you actively sought to have a, a company that did the, did the design and build. And I was that simply because you recognized that the two disciplines are not in isolation. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 if I think back to my architectural heroes, right. You know, my, my, my big architectural heroes were, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright or, 
was Khan or, you know, they, they were, they were master builders. They weren't architects. Right. Um, and then I had my experience with solar decathlon and I'll, I also love to build things. So, um, you know, I built, I, I did an addition to the house that I was living in as a student. I, you know, I did all this stuff myself. Um, so it was, yeah, I don't know, it was, it was a natural jump for me. It didn't require all that much thought um, because it just, it felt right. It's like, yeah, of course they're the same thing. I mean, it's, they're, they're directly connected. And if you understand how this works, then you can do a better job at this and vice versa. Um, so. What were the triggers that back that gave you the opportunity to, cause you were kind of spearhead, were you spearheading the BIM implementation? Had they heard of BIM? Were they already curious about it? Were you just like the key person? They were BIM curious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've actually heard that. I've heard that term many times before, actually. To, oh, to we got the hashtag. They're BIM curious, right? Um, so, yeah, they, they were in their BIM curious phase. Uh, um, they were actually in, in, so they were actually using Form Z. Uh, so at the time, okay. their, their technology stack was uh, a mixture of hand sketching and Form Z for design, uh, and then AutoCAD for documentation. And so they were already doing 3D modeling, which I really liked. There a lot of the firms I interviewed at, 3D modeling was kind of an afterthought. It was only done for rendering. It wasn't done for the design process. But I love the fact that the design principal and the, the guy that I worked under directly, who's now director of design for the company, uh, uh, basically they were, they were using FormZ as their primary design tool. So I knew it. I came in, I plugged in. It was great. I did that for about nine months. Uh, did a lot of bathroom elevations in AutoCAD as well. Did a lot of, you know, really tedious, terrible things. Determined that those things were a waste of my life and my time. Um, and then I got put on the first Revit job. So we had done some little playing and experimenting with it. And uh, Brian, the guy that's now director of design for the firm, um, uh, Brian kind of pushed it to the point where we did it on one project. I was on that job. It went terribly. We were like 5X over budget. No, no. It makes everything better. 5X. It was <laughs> nuts. Like it's literally the worst project in the company's history by like a factor wow. of two. Okay. <laughs> um, terrible. And so, uh, and it was like, it was, it was, the worst, like we picked the worst possible job, which you're probably thinking, oh, it was complicated. Nope. No, we picked the worst possible job. It was super simple. It was a movie theater. And here's the thing, that, that part of the business was like a machine because they had everything templated, everything formatted, everything like already done in CAD. And so the budgeted hours for it were built on everything already being done and just like building blocks. Right. And so, but you had to start from scratch with Revit. And then yeah. we also had the project they would normally have uh, two or three people at most working on for about six to six to nine weeks. Um, we had nine different people cycle through. Nobody worked on it for more than four weeks other than me. And all of them went through the learning curve. And then by the time they were actually doing anything good, they got yanked off the job. And so it was, it was, it had nothing to do with the technology, really. It was choosing the wrong project and staffing. 
And so I, I, we got pulled up like in front of a principals meeting, right? This is like my first principals meeting. And here's all the principals nationwide on, you know, a teleconference. And they're like, so Kelly, can you tell us about this project? Why did it go wrong? And, you know, everybody wanted to hear is the technology. It's not ready yet. Cause that was like, that was even in the agenda. The technology is not ready yet. Kelly's going to tell us why, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, it had nothing to do with technology. <laughs> You had nine different people work on a, you know, 40,000 square foot theater project. We had no templates. We had nothing. All of that stuff's built out. We had to start from scratch. Nobody has done a theater job from scratch. Like 2013, 12, like any like. Six. No, no, seven, 2007. Oh, so really? Okay. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, we had to start from scratch on this. We didn't have any of the blocks. We didn't have any of this. Like, you know, this was the, so like, I'm up here telling them you guys are all a bunch of idiots, right? Basically. I mean, not in so many words, but like you screwed up on staffing and you picked the wrong job, you dummies. <laughs> and, you know, at a lesser firm, I probably would have left there with a box. <laughs> right? Well, cause they, they stuck with it. They like, they kept yeah. going. Well, they did. Basically, I, you know, fortunately, the design principal, the guy running design was in my corner and uh, and basically said, Kelly's right. And 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 so I always I like to joke that I ended up running, you know, less than a year out of school. I ended up running a nationwide Revit implementation for a, you know, uh, what was at the time, a 250 person firm um, by basically being the idiot that didn't step back. <laughs> when they said, who wants to run the, uh, the Revit implementation? Oh, yeah, you're like forging the beach. You're yeah. like, this yeah, I'm just like standing there and somebody, and they're like, who, you know, there's this, I can't remember the movie. There's a scene from their movie, like anybody who wishes to do this, step forward. And like the entire line of people step back, except for one guy. And he's just like, <laughs> you know, and then it's like, what? I didn't step forward. How did I step? Yeah. So that, that's how I became, you know, BIM manager or whatever it was. For, That's uh, wild because that is, it yeah. is interesting that it became a system-wide change. So like there must've been something in that meeting or something in the way that it was communicated to the leadership that this will be successful if it is a more systemic method. Well, I don't even think it was, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what flipped the switch for the firm and it wasn't that meeting. I'm, I mean, I'm good. Come on, you're so convincing. I'm not that good. Um, the, uh, if I do say so myself, um, the, uh, the truth was in that meeting, I just spoke truth. And so, you know, people recognized that that wasn't a good first try. And so basically they gave us another first try. That was the outcome of that meeting. And on that meeting, they involved me and Lewis, another, another guy who was instrumental in that project, even finishing. Um, we were involved in picking the project. Uh, they gave us not you know, a part-time project manager. They gave us the best project manager in the company. We did a complicated project. It was a big project. It was a church. We had time to go through the learning curve and get people productive. They committed to keeping people on staff on the project for the duration. They basically did everything right that they did that they did wrong on the they first. They didn't know one. what the yeah because they didn't know what the proper format for the team should be. Yeah, and so we kind of and we on that team though it was it was an the project manager was engaged and committed in the success. Uh, the the team we had eight people on that project. 
it was it was scheduled to have 12 people by the time we went into CDs. We ended up giving up one of those people because we didn't need them. We did we finished the job with seven people. And it was so the first project was 5x over budget. The second project was actually the most financially successful project in the company's history. Well, they can so, measure that. They can measure that because worst, they're doing both. Yeah, we went from worst to first and, uh, you know, two projects, right? And so uh, basically that project wrapped up. Uh, the results were fantastic. We did it. We did it right. We made mistakes, so tons of mistakes, but like we did it right overall. It was the best project on the portfolio for the company financially that year and like the past 15 years. It was awesome. Rolled into the next principals meeting and they were, you know, everybody was congratulatory, blah, blah, blah. And then they basically, they asked Chris, well, you did a great job on this BIM stuff. I'm sure it was stressful. You know, we've got a couple other projects for you to do next. Which one do you want to do next? You know, we give you your choice. There's this thing, there's this thing. You know, this one would be a BIM project, but these other two, they're renovations and we have CAD backgrounds. So, you know, those other two projects will be done in CAD. And Chris said, I I don't care which project you give me, but whatever project it is, we're doing it in Revit. They're like, but it has CAD backgrounds. I don't care. We're doing it in Revit. And like that. Termination. Well, it just like the best project manager in the company, you know, saying I will never do another CAD project again, even if I have to create the Revit background from scratch, basically like it just flipped everybody's mindset. Every Like walking out of that meeting, I had three other project managers ask me if their new project could do Revit. So it went from pushing Revit to pulling, like they were pulling me and I was being like, no, I can't support four projects simultaneously. Holy crap. Are you crazy? Slow down. Um, which is really there nice. is something to be said about controlling the full ecosystem. Yeah. It's kind of been my, my MO from the very beginning is that one, I'm not siloing design and build separately. I don't want to just create paper. I want to create an outcome. Like this is, this is taking, you know, the know-how of a project manager and infusing it in a digital process to practice, <laughs> test fit, work through challenges together instead of standing on site, wondering if the steel is going to fit <laughs> the right. and the kind of the vibe we're going with. So I love that this, the back was really recognized that they were, they were a good space for this to really be tested and, and document the benefits. Absolutely. Where did no. you get the, where did you get the scan? Where did the scanning piece come into because you did talk about how there were renovation projects and how the project manager wanted to be in Revit. Where did you go from there with your scanning piece? Yeah, I think in 2009, we did, maybe it was 2008, but maybe 2008 or nine, we did our first scan. And so it was a renovation project. So we had a, uh, it was actually First Baptist Dallas, downtown Dallas. Uh, They had a huge campus, lots of buildings. And they wanted to build a new worship center and a new uh, education center. And so they were going to tear down a bunch of stuff. They were going to do some adaptive reuse of some stuff. So it was a super complicated job. Like, you know, parts of buildings coming down, other parts of buildings remaining, parts of facades being reconstructed from scratch because they had to come down structurally, you know, but it was a historic building and it had to be done properly. Like, all sorts of the things in one ecosystem property boom right and so it was like gee how do we do this and you know i had i think i had gone to a spar like gosh 
like weeks before this project, we won it. And so then the project manager came to me and was like, uh, it was actually the same project manager that we did our first Revit job with. And uh, he was like, how are we going to do this? You know, it was like, oh, don't worry, Chris, I got this. <laughs> so it's like, we're going to far, far is a conference that is very specifically related to construction technology. Fair? And, uh, at the time, laser scanning uh, specifically. So it's it's actually broadened its purview recently. Now it's Spar AEC next, but back in oh, the now day, it's Geo Week. That's really? true. Geo Week. Yeah, that's I right. want to fly to Denver because that Leslie, was Leslie would slap me on the wrist if I if it's Geo Week, which includes Spar AEC next. Um, like I don't but, care what you call it; it's just amazing. <laughs> it's like sorry, everything you need to know. Everything you need to know about. Um, Reality capture, which I'm going to go a little, so industry speak, reality capture umbrellas, what, photogrammetry, LiDAR? Yeah. I mean, technically IoT would be reality capture as well, but most people don't use that to, uh, they don't fold that under that umbrella typically. Did you just say like IoT, like Internet of Things? Yeah. Okay. I mean, what are a reality capture? I mean, if you think about building uh, building operation systems, right? You know, tracking all the different, that's reality capture. You're capturing the actual performance of equipment in the building in real time and recording that. That's reality capture. Uh, it's not, you know, spatial reality capture, but it is reality capture. So thank uh, you for letting me like I'm, the industry speak. I want to just kind of make sure that we, we define our, our acronyms as we go. Um, so yes, went to SPAR, saw LIDAR. Saw, saw the LIDAR. Was it the size of a refrigerator or was it like smaller by then? No, it was smaller by then. I mean, we were, that project was scanned with a C10, which is a lovely laser scanner. Um, you know, it still took an hour and a half for a higher high res scan with it, but um, not, you know, like four minutes like they do now. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, you know, a little, little workhorse, but, uh, met a couple firms there that did the work. When I got back, we won this project. It was like, we have to scan it. It's the only way we can do this. And so we scanned it, uh, modeled it. Uh, we tried outsourcing part of the modeling cause we were limited on fee. Um, and so we sent part of the model, uh, over to, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was India. Uh, that was not very successful, ended up redoing most of that work, um, uh, learned my lesson. And uh, yeah, it, it was a great project. We did, I think, five or six more projects where we hired out the scanning. And then uh, basically that first scan was, I think, in 2007 or 2008. We did four or five projects in 2009. And the fee on those four or five projects was like 250, you know, $275,000 of fees paid out. And so I was like, I can buy a laser scanner myself. Um, you've been there. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yep. It. It's a drug. I mean, it's a, it's a gateway into unlocking all the things that, um, yeah, that matter. You want to escape from. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, we bought our own laser scanner. It was, uh, bought the first. Uh, so that was, uh, gosh, I want to say like 2010 or 2011, we finally got it. That was P20. It was the first, uh, uh, Leica's first phase-based scanner. It was fabulous. It was fast. It was uh, broken for the first six months because they shipped it too early. Uh, and then... Uh, My story. How did you know it was broken, Kelly? Oh, uh, let's just say there was a very clear sine wave in the data. And so the data looked like everything it measured looked like it was uh, going through a ripple effect in a movie. It was fabulous. Um, like, this can't uh, yeah. be right. 
Yeah, that so was only we, because you had used scan data previously, so you knew what it was supposed to look like. I, well, I knew what it was supposed. Yeah. To, I knew what C10 data looked like. I knew it was supposed to look. And this this was like by three inches. So imagine the wall behind you. You can see the wall is pretty flat, and it looks like it has waves in a more pattern that are three inches thick. You know the wall doesn't look like that, and so it's like, yeah, okay. Uh, must must deal with sent it back they kept it for another six months and then sent it back to us and it worked but it was uh it was a lovely experience um and yeah and then we hired up some people we did uh that group i think by the time i left back we had six or seven people in the scan to bim uh team um we were doing schedule centralized scheduling for the whole company we were uh, supporting the bim implementation uh, we were supporting um the use of uh, simple systems in estimating. We were supporting Inscape for real-time rendering. We, you know, we had all these different you know things in our portfolio that we were supporting within the company. And so had about 20 people on the team. And that was, yeah, that was uh, not what I thought I'd do when I graduated college, but it was a lot of fun. Well, you stuck with it, right? So was there any part, did you stay on like, designing structures or did you kind of move in as the technology coordinator for the effort? I mean, I went, I went back and forth. So, um, it it was interesting. I, I think when I basically after my first nine months, when I sort of became BIM manager, um, which I'm looking at my own LinkedIn profile, cause I'm trying to remind myself years was May of 2007. Um, so yeah, right, right about, uh, 12 months after I graduated, like nine months after I started. Um, but in May, um, then I was basically technology and I was supporting, you know, multiple projects using Revit for their first time, which was more than a full-time job. Uh, did that for, uh, a while then, uh, you know, basically, uh, in 2008, uh, so like 15 months later, we scaled that up to include some other stuff because we were basically only using it on design for the first year and a half. Um, and we weren't taking advantage of the model for pre-construction, for quantity takeoff, for scheduling, for any of these other things. And so um, we kind of kicked off an internal team of people. So three or four people um, in 2008 and we on board, we started doing Navisworks, uh, at the time in for estimating. And, uh, that was kind of our portfolio. Um, and I was running that team, did that for a couple of years and then got the, it's funny. It was like, I was the technology guy, but I really wanted to get back on projects. And so, um, I finally hired up a replacement, uh, anybody, uh, uh, and more than a replacement, actually, if anybody knows Aaron Maller, uh, <laughs> Aaron is a fount of all things Revit. He knows, he knows things about it. Developers don't know about it. Um, so I, I finally enticed Aaron to move down from New York. So he took over the BIM implementation from me. Um, and that let me go back to projects. And so actually, like I got to work on some of the coolest projects the company was doing as an actual project person while running this team. And so like with the design hat on that you had gone to school for and. Yeah. So I designed super cool, uh, super complicated uh, facade and structure, uh, manage the structure for this building in South Korea. 
So, you know, this, this project was like built underneath a road, the entire worship of the church, the entire worship center was underground because the site was actually too small for a worship center of the size they wanted. So they bought the land under the road from the city and put the, like the stage was under the road. Now think about the implications of that for noise, you know, dampenings, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? So this really, really complex project, it was, you know, uh, 17 stories tall, uh, above ground, it was you know, eight stories, you know, below ground, it's just really, really kind of a jewel box of a building. And uh, I was, I was, uh, I was lead on the skin and the structure. Um, you know, working directly with the director of design on this stuff. And so that was a blast. And then managing the consultant on the structure. And then I got to put on the construction hat and I went out on site on the Kimball Art Museum, the Renzo Piano uh, expansion to the uh, Lewis Kahn Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth. I was on site for 18 months and working on the construction side, did the shop. I, I did the shop drawings for the concrete sub all in 3D. Like there was just all sorts of just really cool stuff. And so yeah, I spent about three years deeply engaged in actual projects, doing design and construction work. Um, and I wouldn't, I guarantee you, I would not have been able to be on both of those projects if I had not had the technology chops that I had. Um, because basically they needed that intense capability with technology for those projects to be successful. And that is- one of the things I've heard criticized about building information modeling, being in Revit, that it suppresses the creative, that it um, is too linear, it's too blocky, it's too challenging. And what I think is really interesting is that as a designer, I don't want to design anything that cannot be built. And so you're talking about a very complex structure that is in a foreign country and it needs to interact with the existing conditions in a very unique way. Um, but it was actually that 3D environment that made it possible for you to, to creatively unlock what it was you wanted to do as a designer because you could it could be in that 3D environment to test it. Am I allowed to share my screen since this is on YouTube? I mean, I suppose. I mean, I've never really done this with, uh, with my... So we just have to narrate for those who are listening... <laughs> I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll like do it super quick, but I like it. Yeah. I, I just want to point this out. This project was done in like 2000 and uh, gosh, 2000, probably 10, 2009, 2000. Yeah, it's 2009. Um, but like, oh, of course, it's not going to open this. Oh, it's going to open this. Oh, here. Give it a minute. We're cool. Yeah, here well, we go. I should have known. I like I should have mm-hmm. known every time we work together and scan to Ben. We're like, let me just share my screen for a minute like this this like this was done in 2009 through 2011 in revit and this is what is what is the name of this building this is the the sarong global ministry center in seoul south korea and this is like this is not a circular this is a this is a conic a distended conic section it's a it's an oval that grows as it gets further up the building i mean this is about as far as you can get from a <laughs> from a rectilinear linear building. The whole thing is like just 
you know, off the charts. Fold and curved and, yeah, and it, you know, all done in Revit. I mean, here's a here's a screenshot in Revit, right, of the of the facade modeled with curtain wall and a complex screen and curving elements. And this is the kind of stuff people would say, oh, you can't do that in BIM. Uh, it's like baloney. Like this is, you know, uh, this is this is exactly what BIM was made for. Like, you know, these complex projects, there's no way we could have done this. I mean, here's some, here's some shots, like actual real life shots underground, right? You know, here's your stage that's under the road. Oh, here's a better one. Like right there. That's underground. Those are skylights uh, with, with baffles that close them off when they want, don't want natural light. Right. I mean, this is underground complex, this is done in Revit in 2009. <laughs> I mean, in 2016, Revit was crashing on me like every, like, I don't know, I could keep it over open for like 45 minutes. Um, no. So this is, there it is. There it is built, right? There it is. And, like, and you, you were know, able to express your de design vision in a, in a render that was connected directly to the same file that you were going to be building from. Yeah, there's, there's that little facade that I had a snippet from, right? Yeah. And so it's like all of, all, you know, all of this now there's things that drive me crazy. Like, you know, this was, these, these were supposed to be radius demolions and I will, every time I see it, I die a little on the inside. We did the whole thing with flat glass. We figured out how to make every panel flat, but dang it, the cuts were supposed to be radius and it just oh, hurts, hurts my soul. But you know, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I feel for the design eye in that category, but the, the average, the average walker on that road is still saying, oh my gosh, that is very compelling. Yeah, but like that's, you couldn't, you, like doing that building in AutoCAD would have been a flipping nightmare. Uh, just oh, would have been so tough. There's a show, right? So there's a show, like I think it's called How It Built. And I instantly clicked on it and I was all excited because I kept waiting. Like, when are they going to save them? When are they going to save them? And I'm watching the one about, Gary and the uh, Louis Vuitton uh, uh, Museum in Paris. And finally they get to like this little piece that this was all made possible, like because so much of it was prefabricated. And so many of the panels and sails that were part of that architecture needed to be uh, fabricated by specialists in a different country and they need to know the fit and how it was gonna get configured and installed and shipped and all of that. And finally, finally, it was said, it was like, well, for this building, the planning and design was uh, developed in uh, technology borrowed from aerospace, a technology called BIM. There you go. <laughs> One line mention. Oh my God, come on, Kelly. Tell, I mean, keep, what, you're sitting in your living room and you're watching this episode and what are you thinking when you hear that line? Uh, well, I mean, there's nothing inaccurate <laughs> about it. I mean, you could argue that uh, aerospace borrowed it from shipbuilding, but, uh, <clears throat> but you know, it's, it's like, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's, it is, it is 3d modeling. It is, it's just what it is. It's using computers to leverage design and imagination and verifying that it's possible. And that's what I love is that there's there's less constraints when you're actually configuring these really imaginative structures. Well, and that's it's it's like I said earlier. Like I think I think it's legitimate for somebody that has spent a life designing in another technology, be it hand drawing, AutoCAD, whatever, 
when they first pick up a new technology, it is inhibiting because they don't know how to use it. It is inhibiting, right? Um, the technology is not what's inhibiting it, though. It's that person's ability to use the technology that's the actual source of the inhibition. If you take somebody that has been facile in that tool from the get-go, I mean, I learned how to design in 3D modeling tools. That's my primary tool for, for design. So to me, moving to BIM was trivial because it is. It is core. It's 3D modeling with some additional layers on top of it. And those are very important layers. So, you know, not to trivialize those, but it is at its core, it's 3D modeling. And if you are facile modeling in 3D, then, then yeah, it's, it's, it's just a matter of, you know, it's a, it's a convenient design tool that allows for a great deal more complexity. Um, you know, cause how do you, <laughs> you know, how do you coordinate marrying, you know, a, you know, 17 story tower that's sitting on top of a parking garage with a worship center that's got free spans of like, you know, 80 meters under in, right in the nested, right in the middle of it, like a circle. And you've got to bring all these things down. You have to have all these transfer conditions. You have to do all of this complex stuff. And oh, by the way, you know, the skin changes on every floor because of the, the profiles and you, like, <clears throat> yes, I mean, technically speaking, you could do it in AutoCAD. It would just be a nightmare. And we, we did it with way less people in way less time using BIM because it gives you that ability to kind of coordinate all that stuff without having to put effort into the coordination part. You put effort into the design. Um, and you feel which, the, and you feel the reward. So you're circling back to like your heroes and your design heroes and where, what they were at the time. And I feel like many of the common audience may miss the fact that there has been um, a translation of what the designer was in that era versus what the, what the current industry market is like, because there is like, that was part of when I started this company, I had to do some research into the past and say, you know, what was it before? And I, I was, I was studying um, Trinity church in Boston and how the architect does take absolute accountability, not for just the design, but overseeing the execution. And yeah. that the definition of general contractor was derived from the contractor that was responsible for the general conditions of the site and how they basically contracted, they leased the quarry so that they were in absolute control of the timelines, the quality of every stone that was coming out of that quarry. It wasn't left to any other responsibility other than need a designer. And then, so like, how is that, that how is that feeding into what's happening in the industry now? Oof. I mean, so much has changed. Um, I don't know, like I, I you know, I'm, I, I, I take a pretty, um, uh, What's, what's, what's the right word for this? Um, I, I have a very unpopular uh, view of the AIA. Um, and I have a very negative view of the AIA because I, I feel like, you know, it's my belief, uh, true or not, it's my belief that the AIA is almost singularly responsible for the situation that our profession is in right now. Being squeezed on fees, 
um, being relegated to the side in terms of having any control over what gets built. Um, basically, you know, I, I feel like the AIA has been on a systematic uh, mission of reducing liability, which sounds great if you don't know anything about business. Um, you know, they've been trying to reduce liability in the architectural profession for, well, since their founding. And the problem is when you cut out liability, you also cut out reward because clients pay people to take risk. I mean, that's business. If you wanted to, you know, go to the meta level, business is all about getting paid to take a risk. That's, that's why businesses exist, Right. Somebody pays you money to do something that they don't want to do themselves or they can't do themselves. And your value is how much of that risk you take on. And so the problem that we've run into in our profession is basically we've de-risked ourselves. And by de-risking ourselves, we no longer have any control. We're not responsible for anything. All we're really responsible for is making drawings. And that's it. That's our deliverable. It's in a contract. Uh, it's the only thing we can held, be held liable to. And we can't actually even be held liable for most of that because of errors and emissions and standard of care and all these other beautiful words and terminologies that lawyers have invented thanks to um, the AIA. And um, yeah, basically now, if we screw up, it's not our fault. Uh, good luck suing us. Shoot, what risk are we taking? Why is the owner even paying us money? Oh, they're only paying us money because somebody got the bright idea that uh, we should make it a legal requirement. So architects went from being a desired knowledge center that people sought after and wanted, you wanted an architect on your job 75 years ago. You wanted an architect. It was cool. It was great. Uh, and now we live in a world where if you talk to most developers, they hire an architect because they're legally required to, not because they want them. They wish they could cut them I, out. And, and that's what I, what I think is so interesting is that there's so much of the aesthetic and the vision and the passion associated with creating a building or a structure. And I, I want to be part of the outcome. Like I want, like that just seems like a strange disconnect for me, but I completely understand that the, complexities of the structures, the timelines of the, of the execution, like all of that makes it very difficult to take full accountability. Yeah. So, and, and I don't think anybody, you know, would argue that full accountability is, is viable either, but I, I just, I think it's one of those things where the pendulum swung way too far. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at the same time, you've got, um, yeah, and there are other trends. The fact that buildings are much more complex. There's much more complex systems. One master builder can't possibly know everything they need to know to manage the entire outcome of a building. You know, that, that's just not viable with the complexity yeah. of systems. We've got to start looking for tools that allow each of those masters of their, their discipline to yeah. infuse their knowledge. I thought this really cool thing on um, LinkedIn, it was a structural engineer describing the power of the 3D environment for testing structural loads because years previous, they would take a slice. They would take that slice and they would, they would engineer through the slice, but failed to conceptualize how every part and piece of the 3D environment impacted the structure of the load. And so now they can start unlocking that 
calculation ability again. Yeah, and they can look at every component and design a more efficient structure uh, rather than having these massive safety factors. And so I, there's, there's so much going on. And so it's not like, you know, you know I, I don't long for the days of the master builder because those days are long gone because buildings are far more complex. But I, I think, you know, the industry has seen the, um, well, I think owners have seen the downside of the kind of traditional design bid build model. Um, you know, they're frustrated that the architects don't take any accountability for the price. They're frustrated that the contractors don't take any accountability for the quality of the bill wins every argument. And so the building looks like crap. Oh, well, you make the architect more powerful. And now the, the cost is, you know, skyrocketing because the contractor can't get any commitments on things in time to procure materials and the schedule gets delayed. And it's just, it's not a sustainable way to keep this profession going for the next hundred years. We've got to find a different business model that recognizes that the architect is responsible for the building. They're not responsible for just drawings and they're responsible for that. Maybe not, they're not responsible for the construction of the building, but they're responsible for the performance of the building, right? Whether that's the design performance, whether that's acoustic performance, whether it's like, if architects want to start getting paid more money again, <laughs> if we don't want the profession to die, you know, and basically be subsumed under these, you know, build arrangements, which is what we've seen in other countries, I will point out. Um, if we don't want to go that way in the United States, we got to start taking responsibility for some stuff, you know, otherwise, you know, give it another 30 years and architects are just going to be all working at design build companies uh, or working for owners directly, we won't have these massive architecture firms, you know, doing all this documentation work because guess what? That stuff's just going to get subsumed, absorbed, and disappear. Um, but, you know. And there, is a way, there is a way to look uh, abroad and see what other, what other countries are doing with this because there was less of a, I don't know, maybe a cultural situation for how, how things are designed and constructed. And so that, I think that's really interesting in that, leads really well into where you are now at ClearEdge because there are so much. I mean, I will say this over and over again. I wanted to get into design and construction and suddenly I find myself technology, like I'm, I'm a technology guru. I'm, I'm on scan to BIM talking about best practices for a LIDAR and what a DAC is. And I'm like, I don't, I never wanted to know this, but what that technology is providing me as a professional and my clients has been so significant, but like with Clear Edge and the way that, I mean, it says that like, you know, it's moving at light speed, but it's not necessarily percolating into the work practices. And so that where, where are you seeing like real consumption and how are you really alleviating and creating accessibility for this? Yeah. Yeah. And I, man, I wish I could remember this off the top of my head, but I, I, I wrote some LinkedIn article ages ago that, um, you know, basically, you know, from the way I see it, there's kind of three big barriers to innovation uh, in the construction, in the vertical construction and horizontal construction, you know, industry, right? The first one is just, the first one is the kind of inter-firm stuff, right? It's the, the you know, hey, uh, you know, so-and-so project manager doesn't want to use BIM. Uh, it's the not my not on my project. I don't use them. I know AutoCAD. Stick with AutoCAD. Ah, it's the the old fogies. It's the it's just the kind of human resistance to change, right? Um, and that is something that 
you know, I felt like I had a meaningful impact on in my tenure at Beck. Um, and, you know, through speaking and, you know, training other firms and other stuff that I did in that time frame. And I, I kind of felt like at least for BEM, for the technologies that I knew really well, um, that I'd kind of made that impression. Like I'd, I'd done what I could. And uh, I, what I ran into, you know, was that, you know, I kind of hit the next barrier. Well, I hit the next two barriers. Uh, the next barrier is really just because the business models in our industry are so, have such narrow profit margins, such narrow profit margins. Our industry spends so little money on innovation and technology and all these other things. And so, you know, I was, you know, I spent kind of my last couple of years at Beck, uh, you know, I was going, and back in 2010, I went to SIGGRAPH. And I saw real-time rendering and we wanted real-time rendering because we were doing all these 3D models and we brought the company in to do a demo and we gave them one of our models and they, you know, pretty quickly got it up to do real-time rendering in 2010. And then, you know, but they were, and I was like, this is amazing. The principals were amazed. Everybody was amazed. It was incredible. And then it was like, what's a license? $120,000 a license. <laughs> What? That's our entire fee on project. I mean, I have a, I mean, I went to one conference and I was asking like how much for this platform, and literally every one of them said five thousand a year. And I'm like, did y'all just have like a lunch and learn before the conference? <laughs> because it is, it is really hard to price. It is really hard to price what a software solution is to an industry that is this inclined. Yes. Well, and that's. And that's, that's the issue is like the, the, the margins aren't there. Like this company, they did real-time rendering for the automotive industry and they designed something once and then they made a hundred or a million of those right. things. Yeah. And they earn, they earn a return on every one of them. And so $120,000 for a real-time rendering solution for their designers was just a drop in the bucket. I was like, sure. Where do I give me my, let me get my checkbook. I'll, can we get two? Right. In our industry, it was like, laugh them out of the building. I get like, to do it once on one thing. I'm not selling this thing another time. Yeah, it's like, I'm done. You know, it's like one and done, baby. So, you know, it's, it's like, oh my gosh, how do we, you know. So I saw that with real-time rendering and it took another, it took almost another decade from the first time I saw the real-time rendering in automotive to when we actually got reasonable real-time rendering in our industry. Um, it, you know, same thing, because actually it was 2009 when I saw SIGGRAPH. And I can't remember when Inkscape like finally got to the point that it was like really, really usable. But it was like 2016 or 2017, I think. Like it Fair, was. Yeah, because like when I was in uh, 2018 is when I first saw it. And yeah. it was and, it obviously and, been around a bit. So it's, it's like, you know, it just takes, we have this long lead time. We get, we get second or third hand technology. And it's so like, you know, the, your comment earlier about, oh, it was adopted from aerospace. It's like, yeah. and it's true because aerospace has the money. And so they get the tech first and then we get it. And so, you know, a big part of why I went to ClearEdge is I saw so much potential in reality capture as a technology but applying it to actual workflows and building construction was non-trivial. I mean, it was really difficult and it took a lot of effort. And so, you know, 
how, how do we take that and make it easier? How do we make it easier for people to use this? How do we take, make it take less time and less money to leverage this data for something meaningful? And so I kind of wanted to apply myself at that second problem, which is, which is actually getting the technology into a state where it's usable and adoptable by the industry. And then, yeah, there's still, you know, you still have to come over, get over that first hurdle, which is the actual human disinclination to change. But I was like, I put in, I cut my, I put in my 10 years doing that. And I was like, I, I need a break from this. <laughs> it's, 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 it's tough, hard like work. Dragging the reluctant child out of the toy yeah. store. And so it's like, it's tough, hard work. I did it. I let, you know, somebody else can do that for the next decade. I'm going to try and bring some technology solutions um, that somebody else gets to, um, to apply. And then I will try and apply my knowledge and experience to making them as easy as possible to, you know, ad ad adopt given. Yeah. Cause you have to make sure that the, yes, the, yeah. the, and then that is, that's something that's really great to hear the, where we are in the technology evolution is that now the fundamentals are established, the capabilities mm -hmm. are established, and now we get to fine tune it and say, well, how do we create, create a pleasant, more play experience for the professional or even the end user of right. these software solutions of this technology? Yeah, how do we, and there's, there's a great book, um, Crossing the Chasm, like anybody who hasn't read this, it's a great theory on adopting technology in any industry, right? But it applies well to ours as well. And just, you know, trying to take these things that are kind of early adopter tools and technologies and bring them to the, you know, early majority or the late majority so that those people can, you know, that aren't willing to put in that effort to try something new just because it's how they're wired. But they can just get in, get up to speed and start leveraging it to make our profession more effective. Yeah, of course, the it's third... Okay. It's yeah, okay to find an easy button here, folks. Like, yeah. I feel like there was a, easier. if I use the easier easy button, button, then my work is going to be less, lesser, or that I will have thought, thought less, less of the execution or strategy of it. I'm like, no, no it lets you think more. It allows you to think more. It allows you to think bigger. It allows you to execute more. And it creates an environment where you have inclusion. You know, yeah. how does everybody, get, how's everyone going to use this space? There is just key information when you're in a real-time render of a of a file that's going to be used for construction documents and you get to experience what those 3d environments feel like so powerful going back to my core problem how do we how do we make architects relevant again how do we give architects the ability to take on more responsibility well they need to spend less time manually dimensioning 475 sheets of drawings. Like they need to spend less time putting flipping text notes on stuff. They need to spend less time like managing all this complexity um, and just more time actually doing the work that matters, which is making the outcome, the building good. And so like, you know, and the, you know, the third problem is uh, legal. Like the third problem is all this cruft of here's how, you know, projects work, business models, stuff like that. But my, uh, my, the, the guy that ran Beck uh, when I joined Beck, Peter Beck, so family owned business, um, you know, Peter had this thing that he always told us. He, he would, he'd say, Kelly, there are, you know, there are problems and then there are predicaments. Do you know what the difference is? And I, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm the guy that like goes to read the dictionary as soon as you ask me that question, which was not the right answer. And he was like, the difference is Kelly, you can solve problems. 
And, uh, you know, his point being that, you know, some things and, you know, for me at the time as like an intern three years out of school, there were a lot of predicaments <laughs> that I couldn't solve, but there were problems I could solve. And so I should focus on the problems, right? And, uh, you know, you know, one of these days, I hope to be at a point, you know, in my career where maybe that, that legal cruft, the business model, all that stuff is no longer a predicament and is actually a problem. And maybe I'll, go, maybe I'll go tackle that one day, but at least right now, all that stuff is still legitimately a predicament for me. So I'm going to focus on the problem that I can solve, which, you know, is an exciting, interesting problem of how do we how do we automate this process of taking reality capture data and creating a digital twin um, and then keeping those things in sync and up to date and, you know, managing all the different outcomes of that data, whether it's QAQC in the field, validating work is built correctly, whether it's making sure the models match the as-built conditions, whether it's extracting as-built models on these, you know, rapidly increasing number of adaptive reuse projects that are going to be happening in the world as we need have more and more building stock that we need to reuse and not tear down. And like, those are, those are meaningful, interesting, exciting problems. So. And it uh, would be great to get some like, you know, more time to solve for those solutions and more tools to solve for those. And so what we need for that, of course, is for people to go out and, you know, invest that very small amount of money they have in their firm for <laughs> innovation. We need to, you know, we, we need to get that investment by having people buy software um, because Real time render software does not cost 120K anymore. No, it doesn't. And that's does not. <laughs> and, and the reason why is because, uh, you know, well, Technology and time, well, with, with time, technology gets better. Time heals all wounds with technology and things get cheaper over time. And this will get cheaper over time, but it gets there because the automotive industry pumped a lot of money into it and that slowly lowered the cost and to the point that it came down into our industry. But, uh, you know, we'd sure like for our industry to take the lead on some of this stuff. And so, uh, you know, get out there, spend, spend a little bit of money, buy a license or two of experimental software. There's tons of startups. And I, I would encourage anyone at a firm that's engaged in the technology buying process, you know, Yes, you want to buy tools that have a meaningful impact on your process and your and and you know can be put in use today on real projects, right? That's that's the number one criteria for buying software. But where you can try and find a little bit of budget to invest in emerging technology. So whether it's things like you know, test fit as a design tool, or whether it's things like Clear Edge for scan to BIM or things like that, you know. We, we survive or we starve based off the software purchases. And we don't sell hundreds of licenses to a company like Autodesk. We sell one or two licenses to every company. And that's a lot of hard work uh, to build all those new relationships. So, you know, get out there. If, if, the, <clears throat> if you're frustrated by the rate of technology advancement in our industry, you know, think about the role that you have to play in that, right? Oh, it's a Gandhi quote. <clears throat> the change you want to see. Need the change. Invest. You've got. It doesn't have to be a lot, but <clears throat> find things to invest in, and support companies that are trying to make a change in the industry, and that will give them the money they need to actually make that change happen. Um, <clears throat> I know it's like chicken egg, all those things. But you are you are wearing a scan to BIM shirt, and I feel like that's an incredible resource that that Clear Edge is pushing out is just communicating 
we, we talked about conferences. I had Chad Studer on from um, Nor Technologies. And like the one thing that he had wished he had said was go to conferences and we get to start actually going to conferences again. And that's where, I mean, we met at conferences. I've met people that are in the circle of Scantivan, which at this point is still relatively small. So it's a great time to kind of get out there and really investigate, you know, and if anybody wants to reach out to you, you are on LinkedIn, you have a great bio. <laughs> um, and if you're curious about any of the Clear Edge products, like they are incredible and they are very like um, specific solutions to specific problems, um, but there's an infrastructure there to support that implementation. Yeah, who doesn't want to get a massive head start on their scan to bend? Who doesn't want to be able to test their concrete slab for embeds? I know, right? Um, There's all sorts of, there's all sorts of wonderful problems technology can solve. Yes. Well, thank you so much for um, joining us today. If you're interested in more inside the firm, there's uh, YouTube and inside the firm on Instagram, find us. And of course, if you're uh, a female in the industry, or if you want to support women in the industry, there's women in BIM.org. Please reach out to me for that and reach out to Kelly for um, anything that you're curious about in the scanned BIM world. There's lots of webinars out there pushing all that out thank you so much for your time my pleasure thank you for having me on and have a wonderful rest of your day you also